I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast with Jack Miller. Keep up the good work. Welcome to episode 10 of the Pothole Problem Podcast. This is bringing us very near to the end of the first season, and in fact, this week's episode is our final guest of the season. Next week, I will wrap things up with yet another interview by my son Zane of me, where I'll bring it all together as best as I can from listening to the guests that I've had over the last 10 weeks. There's a lot to think about and a lot to draw out of that, so I'll do my best and I'll have Zane draw it out of me through his fine interviewing. Our guest this week is a man with deep experience in Oregon and national politics. He worked for an Oregon legislator and 18-year member of Congress from Oregon, Les O'Coin. He was also the chief of staff for the Oregon House Speaker, Hardy Myers, for a period of time. He has co-founded three different communications and strategy firms. He's currently working with his daughter, Allison, on a firm they co-founded. With all that said, I think it's time now just to hear what Pat has to say. I have in the studio today Pat McCormick. Welcome to the show, Pat. Thank you very much, Jack. Nice to meet you. Pat is a communication strategist and political consultant who's been in Oregon politics for a very long time. <laughs> I'm happy to have his long perspective. So I'm just going to start by asking you, what got you started in politics? I think growing up, one of the things that fascinated me was how political campaigns basically connected with the public. Even when I was in grade school, I remember the first buttons that I went to collect were I like Ike buttons. And my third grade teacher had been a great fan of Harry Truman's. And so it began to make me think about people in public life. But probably the biggest influence was the Kennedy campaign in 1960. That was the year I graduated from high school. And John Kennedy had inspired a view of public service that appealed to me and being an Irish Catholic kid and seeing an Irish Catholic running for president and calling out this uh, involvement in community and public service uh, made me feel that that was something I had an obligation to do in it no matter what else I was doing in my life. So the call to public service spoke to you. What is it that has kept you nourished in politics or has that fallen off over the course of the day? No, I still find it uh, it's an addictive sport. And uh, once you get hooked on being involved, there's a sense of sort of being an insider to the way the community or the 
the state or the national level government is moving and you feel an obligation to stay in tune with all that. So that's been part of what's driven my personal choices for employment, but also my longtime political interest in, in following the sport closely. So you use the word addicting, and I agree with that as well. What, what is something that's particularly addicting? Like what, what is one of the features of it that makes it addicting to you? One of the features for me is clearly being on the inside, having a sense of understanding about the nuances. Um, because of the nature of the work that we do, I'm often involved in uh, public opinion survey research that gives a great deal of insight into what's going on, working with professional pollsters and research firms on qualitative and quantitative kinds of research that give insights into people's perceptions of issues, but also how they are processing information. And, and from a, as a communicator, my interest is in how do you engage people in a way that's actually going to connect with where they are and help them understand things, how they put those pieces together and why they are important. And it also gives you a sense of your own fallibility. I mean, one of the things that I often think about when I am doing public opinion research and attitude research is how my own gut instinct about what the responses are going to be when we ask these questions turns out not to be true when I read the data. And it's always humbling that you think you're continually tuning your own capability to discern what's going on and you find that the public doesn't necessarily follow those easy prescriptions. You need to keep learning. I think that's actually probably not the common perception among the public on the outside that those behind the scenes are humbled. I think there's often a common perception that there's a sort of arrogance and a distance, but you're seeing that the humbleness of, well, I thought I was right and I'm not right. That brings me to the question that I ask all of my guests because, you know, we're talking about you being behind the scenes and what you're seeing from there and the humbleness that brings. So my question is, what is something that used to outrage you about politics that no longer does and why the change has occurred It's a good question, and I thought a lot about it because there are many things that outrage me, that used to outrage me, that still outrage me. Probably what outraged me in my youth that still uh, outrages me, but I can at least understand it better, is people's indifference to the public life, that they really don't care, they don't need to vote, they don't understand what the issues are. They have a sense of you know, this isn't going to affect my life. I've come to understand more about what drives people in different directions as it relates to issues. And Why is it that you understand why people can be apathetic or disengaged? Well, I think it's doing a lot of work around public policy communications. I mean, I, I think about outrage in a context of communications, uh, risk communications. There's a, a professor named Peter Sandman who wrote a paper that was originally a presentation that he'd given on risk communications. And he talks about the risk equals hazard plus outrage. So some things that are perceived as a significant hazard may not engender high levels of outrage. He was using examples like the seatbelt law at that time. came. There was a lot of effort that had to go in to convince people 
that not wearing a seat belt was in fact dangerous. And so you had to elevate outrage or concern in order to help people get a better sense of the actual risk, even though the hazard, you look at the data, was really apparent. The other disappointing trend is to see what's happened in terms of the news media. We used to have a relatively small number of mostly trusted news voices that we heard. I mean, Walter Cronkite was sort of the the person you could trust who was talking about a range of things, but the voice, the appearance and everything engendered trust. So for those who were shorthand connected to public life through what they were hearing in the news, a trusted figure like that saying something that seemed like that was sound and I could trust that he was telling me the truth. And while it's still true that older Americans are getting their news from TV, and there's still a segment of the public that rely on video for their understanding of local news as well as national news, that segment is changing and how younger generations are using media is much different. And the media itself has changed so dramatically where in the past, a newspaper like the Oregonian that used to be the newspaper of record for the entire state, not just for the Portland metropolitan area, had reporters who had been on their beats for years or decades in some cases. So who, the person who was covering healthcare, you knew they really understood healthcare in detail. If they were covering international trade, they were experts in that area. We don't have that anymore. Uh, Newspapers and all media with, you know, just tiny exceptions don't have those subject matter experts in the same positions as they did in the past. They've shorthanded the process that used to take news and have it reviewed by copy editors and so forth. And, And a lot of what gets posted now, the idea is post it first, update it later. So you, you had a story this week. It'll probably be outdated by the time you and a, your podcast comes out. But Greg Walden deciding that he was going to retire from Congress. You know, we saw posts that were up on new websites within minutes that linked his video telling that. But it's taken several days now for other stories to expand on that, to talk about who's now thinking about running in that race and those kind of things. So that iterative kind of journalism has become much more the norm for where we are going to get most of our information, which is online. I saw that story on my phone, and it was maybe a four-paragraph story. And I will confess that because I have a lot of news to process and a lot of information to process, that I didn't go back to that story. Mm-hmm. And so I got a very short version of that, even though this is in my field. <laughs> in fact, the original story that popped in that I saw right away was very short and mm-hmm. very, not very informative at all, and certainly hadn't been vetted through a lot of people. So I didn't see the story the next day that appeared that probably had, or maybe even hours later that had 15 paragraphs right. instead of four paragraphs. It's a really good example that even somebody such as myself, who is a, a professional information processor, that I am subject to the same forces mm-hmm. that lead people to get information that is incomplete or you know poorly vetted. Well, and it's it appears that there's so much about the way people use communications tools that is driven by generations. And looking at the data, I do a lot of looking at Pew's research on media and communications an overwhelming majority of baby boomers were still relying on broadcast TV for their news, but 
for most of the millennials and into Gen X, those folks were relying on Facebook. And Facebook has continued to become this, which is a unfortunate thing, listening to the most recent news about what's happened and knowing what happened in 2016 with them. The reliance that people have on Facebook as a source of news as well as a, a place from which to link to news where they get alerted to stories and may go follow them up on another platform. For the most part, they're just taking what they see on the site itself, not going out and getting the benefit of reading the original material. And it means you're getting just this snapshot of something that's much more complex. A small snapshot, and then I, I think what you get an awful lot of that it adds on to that is a lot of opinion. Mm -hmm. The opinionating industry is strong in places like blogs and mm -hmm. Facebook where the original source material is utilized as a launching point, not for further investigation right. into the truth, but for launching an opinion. The idea that these platforms, which do really allow this kind of back and forth engagement with the issues, they have really created for a lot of people a place to rant and counter rant. Right. And we tend, because of the algorithms of those platforms, to get content that is consistent with what we've already seen and expressed an interest in ourselves. So we narrow the scope of people's understanding on issues. We appeal to their tribal instincts about politics, and we're not helping edify and bring people along to a better understanding of the nuances of these. It's so easy to just say yes or no because of the headline, but without understanding the detail, it's really hard to fully understand what somebody whose position may be different from yours is really trying to communicate or to understand how an issue uh, that seems simple is actually complicated and nuanced and layered and requires a lot of sophisticated thinking to understand. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. I think that you've addressed the what used to outrage you but no longer does. It seems like your answer was you are less outraged now because you understand what's behind people's apathy and disengagement. What is something that continues to or freshly outrages you now? And how do you manage the powerful emotions that come from that? You're living in the Trump era is enough to outrage anybody. The disregard for the norms of civic life that are evident in the way we're watching this play out on the national stage, I'm finding that new outrage just cascades upon me because of the misbehavior and the, the lack of courage on the part of a lot of folks who remain allies, notwithstanding the evidence that suggests this is a terrible situation to be in. So having spent this 
disorienting three years of what's happened with this administration jeopardizes my sense of equilibrium about public life and public you are life. old enough to remember and to have been an adult when uh, Richard Nixon was president when Absolutely. Watergate was happening so can you draw some comparisons or contrasts or does the Watergate comparison not even resonate with you because it's so different well I think the Watergate comparison shows an abuse of power and there's certainly a parallel in that sense of abuse and the cover-up and the attempts to keep it from being actual actions that were taken from being public, uh, there are parallels in that. But in a sense, the cheap political trick of trying to burglarize your opponent's campaign office by comparison to what President Trump has done in the current environment but also things that he did as it related to issues that were investigated by Robert Mueller. All of those things seem to be on a scale that's much different to me in terms of my level of potential outrage than the Nixon impeachment. And what will you speak to the type of political discourse? Because you indicated in answering this question that it was the degrading of the level of the discourse that has you particularly disturbed. You may be additionally disturbed by abuses of power, but was that different in the mid-70s? Was the yeah. discourse more whole and more healthy in response to Nixon? Well, there was more of a sense that it was channeled in a way that there were norms of expe expectations that they adhered to in the things that they said than the all-over-the-map stuff there. Uh, again, for those who are listening to this weeks later, it may mean less, but Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who was testifying yesterday and being outrageously condemned by folks as, you know, espionage was involved or unpatriotic. unpatriotic. And, you know, none of that would have been uh, in bounds during a, the Nixon impeachment right, well, you know and to, to connect back to what you were saying earlier about the difference in the communications landscape when the primary way that people would have gotten news about that testimony would have either been print or the walter cronkites of the world mm -hmm. there was a gatekeeping aspect that would keep those kinds of things from being said and repeated and swirled around and whereas right. now you can attack somebody from anywhere right. and through so many multiple means so that the terrain is ripe for this kind of degraded discourse. And it's dangerous because you can see that as these allies of the president have come after the whistleblower and the whistleblower's attorney, there are actual physical threats of danger and you see outrageous acts happening and connecting those to political discourse demeans political discourse and keeps us from having the kind of public conversation that we need to have about public policy. So, yeah, it, it couldn't be more outrageous to me than, than what we have been able to see, except I say that and then something else happens in this administration that says, yeah, I guess it can go deeper and be worse. So is there some kind of remedy that you see either for yourself as a person who doesn't necessarily want to have this upward spiral of outrage mm -hmm. or for us as a society, you as a speaking as a professional political communicator? What can we do about this? What do you do? What can people do for themselves? And what can we as a society do? Well, to go back to the Nixon era, Watergate happened. That was the cycle in which my boss, who was then majority leader in the Oregon House of Representatives, 
uh, decided to run for Congress in an open seat in the 1st Congressional District. And he was successful, elected to Congress in 1974 with a huge class of freshmen that took over, that undid the traditions of Congress, that seniority no longer was the key to getting key chairmanships. All of these taken-for-granted structural issues around Congress changed dramatically because this freshman class came in and had a different perspective. I am hopeful that there will be a post-Trumpian class of members of Congress and people in public life who see a restoration of the civility in public discourse that is missing right now that are going to call us to our better angels who can work across the aisle. When I was first working in the legislature, 73 was my first session, you saw how amazingly you could be arguing with one legislator of a different party on a policy issue, and then the two of them would go over to the side aisle and be laughing at each other and poking, and then that night they'd be out together having dinner and a beverage. The relationships were much different in those days. People respected other members, even if they were of a different party, and there was dialogue and connection. The opportunity for that doesn't exist. Members of Congress today have to spend most of their time dialing for dollars. They don't really have, other than their duties of going to committee meetings and stuff they have to do in their own office, the raising of the money to stay in public office is taking so much of their time that building relationships with other colleagues in their same party or across the aisle even more so, they just don't have as much opportunity as they did. 20 or 30 years ago. So you see, though, the, the possibility, maybe the hope that a sort of new generation that remakes the institutional culture of Congress and of politics in general could potentially, mirroring the post-Watergate transformation, could potentially bring us back from the brink of the kind of unhealthy political discourse we have. That would be my hope. That's your but hope. I'm Irish, and so <laughs> I have a sense of optimism with a recognition of the reality that life can be terrible, sure. too. And I'm not looking for you to make some kind of overly optimistic prediction. I'm just asking about what what would it take so that people can say, okay, that that is something that it would take, and I want to contribute to that positive effort. Uh, what about you personally? You know, How do you get yourself unwound from outrage that you see if you're watching television or reading the news or getting information from various sources that makes you worried that our political discourse is hopelessly degraded? How do you personally? One of the things that for close to 50 years, I was part of the Portland City Club, a place where there's still civility in the conversations about issues affecting our community. And I think having a place where you can actually engage with other people and have civil conversations is important for all of us. In this era, one of the mental health prescriptions I have for myself on a daily basis is what does Seth Meyers or Stephen Colbert or Jimmy Kimmel or Trevor Noah have to say about what's going on? To see the ridiculousness of through their eyes, and I, I appreciate having that. And then next week I'm going to be flying to Maui for two weeks, and I'll be warm and sunny and well, reading excellent. books and not paying any attention. Not, not all of my listeners are going to be able to do that, <laughs> but I think we can do all of the rest of that stuff and work towards, as a goal, the ability to fly off to Maui. Well, 
Well, Pat, I really appreciate you coming in and sharing your perspective, which is the, a very long perspective on uh, politics. I appreciate it. I have a lot to think about, and uh, thanks for coming in. My pleasure, Jack. Nice to meet you, and look forward to talking to you again. That's it for episode 10 of the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller, and I want to thank Pat McCormick for yet another stimulating and thought-provoking interview. I want to thank all of my guests that have sat down with me this fall, and I also want to thank my executive producer, Shannon Emerson, for all the guidance that she's provided in making these first 10 episodes into something that I can be proud of. I'm being thankful here, of course, because it's the wrap-up, but also because it is now the week after Thanksgiving, and I'm feeling particularly grateful for all of the people that I've met, all of the ideas that I've heard, all the things I've learned over the last 10 weeks. Speaking of all of that, next week I'm going to be doing a wrap-up episode and then taking a month off for the winter holiday and back in January with the winter season of the Pothole Problem Podcast. And now it's time, of course, for the song. This episode we have a song by Hook and Anchor, this is called Hammer. Thanks, as always, for listening. And I want to die with a hammer in my hand. I want to die with a hammer in my hand. No, Lord, please listen, understand I want to die with a hammer in my hand. And I want to live where those green grasses grow. I want to live where those green grasses grow. No, Lord, please listen, let me go, I want to live where those green grasses grow. Every day is a new day and I'm stranded on my feet, ain't got no one to me, if only yesterday. a promise, but I can't keep it long. You know I ain't that strong. I'm drifting miles away, and I want to love like I'm drowning in a hole. I want to love like I'm drowning in a hole. No, Lord, please listen. Forget about my soul, I'm gonna love like I'm drowning in a hole. And I wanna die with a hammer in my hand. I wanna die with a hammer in my hand. No, Lord, please listen. Understand I wanna die